Hi everyone, you're listening to HashMap on Tap. Welcome and thank you for tuning in and listening into the show today. I'm Kelly Coleffel and my guest today is Murali Bogavali at Tinder. Murali is a group product manager for data and platforms where he leads data and platform strategy and develops the overall solution roadmap across a wide range of areas. Murley, welcome to the show. What are you drinking this afternoon? Thanks, Kelly. Uh, I'm actually di- drinking masala chai. This is uh, my mom's recipe, and um, I would uh, want everyone to give it a try. So uh, mom's secret recipe, huh? Yep. <laughs> I like it. Is this is this your go? Is this a specialty? Is this a go to tea during the week? What's your what's the cadence on this? Uh, so this is uh, the specialty of it. Uh, the specialty aspect of it uh, comes over the weekends, uh, primarily because you don't have time during the uh, weekdays to make it. There's so many different spices that go into it. There's cardamom, there's cinnamon, there's ginger. Doing that every day is going to be difficult. So we do we do this on special occasions, and the podcast is a special occasion, so we have it today. Well, it sounds like it has an incredible aroma. It does, yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah. it actually opens up your senses, and I bet you it's better than beer when it comes to spiking it up. Uh, I mean, probably better than a Red Bull as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's... That's fantastic. I'm I am not quite that exotic today. I've I do have I'll, I'll hold it up so you can see. I've got a peak tea crystals. It's a it is a black tea with peach and ginger infused in it. I'm I'm just taking it straight, no milk or sugar or anything, and it's it's really good. It's got just enough peach and just enough ginger to to set it off from a just a normal black tea. So I'll enjoy that throughout the show and let you know how it goes. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah, it is. Well, all right. So I'm I'm kind of an old guy. Uh, Tinder was not around when I was dating. My wife and I have been married. It'll be 30 years this year, actually, 2021. So I was not around uh, during the time when, when uh, Tinder took off. Um, what first sparked your interest in working at Tinder? I know you've been over there a little while. Take us through that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, first off, congratulations on your 30-year anniversary. Um, Thank you. October this year. So I've got a few months, but I think we'll make it. <laughs> cool. Good to hear. So uh, talking about Tinder, what sparked my interest? When I start, first started talking to Tinder, the, the initial conversation was around, hey, we don't have a data PM at Tinder, and we would want somebody to come in and be a quarterback for the data teams. So where I was in my journey at that point of time, I have built data products on my career, primarily in B2B space, if you will. And I've never been on a B2C platform before, I never worked on it. And the opportunity to work at Tinder for the, the scale of data that they have was very uh, intriguing to me. I mean, though I call it B2C, the way I operate with other product teams is in a B2B2C space. Uh, I mean, I'll cover more about that later, primarily because the consumers that I work with are product and business teams. It's all internal. So that's the reason I would say B2C. Yeah, so from that perspective, uh, working on a uh, different aspect of product management and ensuring that I was working with large-scale data was what intrigued me and what motivated me to join Tinder. Now, that's interesting. So I know everybody's probably wondering... What's the scale of Tinder? Get, we, we need to know, like, 
how many dates per day, dates per week? You know, what, you got any metrics you can share with us? From, I think, uh, the numbers that were released in 2019, I, I believe we made around 15 million dates a week. Oh, my gosh. That is incredible. I've I've got uh, I've got some some kids that have have used Tinder and uh, they 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 give me the process on it and uh, that is an incredible number. You also talked about we think of a lot the B two B space having having so much responsibility, a lot of exposure. You've got potentially thousands or tens of thousands of people on on an individual application. But when you look at the B2C space with what you guys do and the reach that you have, how, how many how many people at any one time might might be on Tinder? How many folks go through the app on a daily basis? Is, is there a metric there that you can share? I can say it's in tens of millions. I think that that's the number I can share. Uh, but yeah, so the, the amount of data that we generate on uh, Tinder is huge. The number of people on an app like Tinder is is huge. So we are talking about peta and zeta bytes of data, if you will. Had you worked with data at that scale in previous uh, roles, some of your B two B roles or anything? I mean, that's that's kind of unheard of at that at that size. No, not at B two B SaaS products that I was building before. Not at the scale. It, it was mainly enterprise consumers in in the B two B play that I did. So obviously, you can think of maybe hundreds of companies, but not nothing beyond that. Yeah, and I mean, with that with that type of scale, that type of data coming in, I'm assuming it's growing. Where give us a little bit of a sense for where things are going from your from your area data platform perspective. Uh, you know where where have you been in the last year or so? Where are things going as well? Sure, yeah. So from that perspective, I think it's not just Tinder. If you take any social media platform or any any other consumer app out there, the data is growing primarily because uh, now we are at a, a juncture where we are capturing uh, every interaction on the platform, right? So with growing data, there is definitely need for uh, growing insights, primarily because everybody wants to be a data-driven decision maker, if you will. They want their uh, decisions to be backed and rooted in data. So that what that calls for is a improvised data infrastructure to enable those decision-making and also capabilities to share insights in real time with your consumers in most cases. So there's a need for data-powered solutions, which are going to facilitate and enhance customer experience. So I believe from that perspective, because the data needs are growing, the data infra and data tooling needs to catch up. And I would say Tinder is no different. From that perspective, the way Tinder has grown, right? In the first few years, we were looking at ensuring we were able to cater to the needs of uh, internal teams. And now, as, as years progressed, we, we wanted to ensure that our data systems that we have put in place are scalable and are giving the right insights at the right time. You mentioned a word I, I haven't heard used before, and I'm really interested. I think you said improvised data infrastructure. Talk to me about that. What do you mean improvised? I, I think I've got a sense for it, but... Uh... Does that is that imply some level of uh, flexibility that maybe you you know talk to me about improvised data infrastructure? Sure, sure. If you look at the data tooling and data architecture, how is it, how it has evolved? 
what was a gold standard like an year or two before is no longer in use, right? Things have evolved so much. Earlier, people used to talk about a data warehouse and a data lake separately, right? People used to talk about ELT and ETO separately, right? So the way it has evolved, I would say, is now we are looking at a um, confluence of data lake and data warehouse. And there's a new pattern evolving called Lakehouse, which wants to solve everything for all different kinds of personas from a data consumption perspective, right? So to enable a Lakehouse, which is not only having your uh, immutable data, which is not only hosting your immutable data, but at the same time is providing capabilities to make data-driven decisions, right? So that means that the, the lake house needs to not only host raw data by itself, it also needs to enable for creating rollups on the fly and making aggregations, if you, if you will, and ensuring that there's capability to get to derived data and putting the derived data onto dashboards to generate insights. So from my perspective, this confluence is great, and that's what I'm calling as the evolution or improvisation, if you will. No, that's that's interesting. What you share a little bit? What are the technologies that you're using to enable this data lakehouse concept? There are quite a few. I mean, if if you go to a fully managed service, you can look at Delta Lake or Databricks. From that perspective, they tout that as the lakehouse of the future. And there's a few others like Dremio who are trying to come up with a uh, similar concept. But from what I have seen working with data teams, data teams tend to create something internal to themselves, which kind of replicate what a Delta Lake or a, uh, a Dremio does, which is building a lakehouse pattern internally. So what it means is ensuring that there's a data lake, which is a source of truth. And then there is a uh, data warehouse, which is only powering your most needed business decisions. Not everything needs to be in the data warehouse from that perspective, right? So moving from a ETO to ELT is what we have seen over the past few years. And I think most organizations are now moving towards an ETLT, which is having transformation at the data lake to enable multiple consumers to uh, drink off of the data lake and maybe having a little of those transformations at the data warehouse level for the end consumers to glean insights, if you will, right? So ETLT is definitely powering the lakehouse concept. And I believe there's multiple players there. There's DBT, there is Daxter, and then there is Airflow, which is kind of orchestrating all of these workloads. So there's quite a few players there, and I'm actually excited to see where this goes. Man, this is an advanced class. This ETLT that you just broke out, Avi, that's a brand new term. I'm going to have to use it. Can I use that? Go for it. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not mine, and uh, somebody coined it before me. So, yeah. Oh, I don't man. have any trade, I don't have any copyright or trademark on that, so you can use that. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What are you guys using for uh, your data warehouse layer? Uh, so we use Redshift for our data warehouse. Okay. And then you you also mentioned DBT. We've been uh, big fans of DBT for a while. Are you using that today or is it something that you're looking at? We have been looking at DBT primarily to make it easier for our analyst community to create transformations or workloads. 
we were on Rundeck and uh, we were using Python scripting before, and you could tell uh, that's all manual and it's not something we want to keep up with, with growing our needs. So we want we wanted our transformation layer to be flexible and easy to use. So TBT provides that capability from a uh, SQL scripting perspective, and it also integrates well with an orchestration tool like Airflow. So from that perspective, we have started evaluating DBT, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. If you've got if you got some SQL skills in-house, it could be a really, really powerful tool. Let me, let me ask you, Morali, when we're working with clients to uh, design and architect uh, data products and solutions, things that you guys are doing every day at significant scale, uh, we tend to think about what we talk about the seven S's. So simplicity, speed, sustainability, self-serve, that kind of thing, uh, scale, security, savings. When you look at those those seven S's, and, and we talk to other customers, you know, different ones bubble to the top. Hey, that's most important to you, your team, and when you're building data products at Tinder, what which out of those tend to be the most important to you? Yeah, so I think on that, Kelly, it's hard to say that, that one is a priority of the other. I, I feel that all seven of them are needed, but depending on the size of the company and the scale of the company in which it operates, and also depending on the data maturity at the company, mm. I believe you would emphasize on one versus other. For example, if you asked me this question two or three years back, I would have said speed and simplicity because we were we were in a hyper growth stage and we wanted to ensure that the data products that we were building were helping our product teams and business teams. So back then, I would say speed and simplicity. But a year later, right, we already got the data that we need and we, we were trying to make sense of the data. So I would then say scalability because we have amassed a lot of data and we wanted to ensure that our systems are capable to cope up with the demand. So I would say scalability uh, one year back. Uh, Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, going back, say, four or five years, what was what was Tinder doing for the data platform? I know it was before you got there, but when you, you know, they kind of moved to, you know, this Redshift and uh, Delta Lake type concept, what was going on? Was it Hadoop or something like that five, six, seven years ago? So, yeah, like you said, this was before my time, but Tinder has always been cloud native since day one. They they were using AWS and whoever made the decision saw the needs for future. And I guess I would say made the right decision because everything that we do now these days is, is in the cloud and it's easy to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's using something like EMR or something like that. No, that's good. So... It's interesting too that you saw this shift from you know two or three years ago, speed and simplicity, and now that scalability becomes so important when you're hitting the kind of numbers and volumes that you guys are. And obviously, you're dealing with a lot of personal information, so that security side comes into it too. Exactly, yeah. So in the wake of something like GDPR or CCPA, yeah. from what we have seen, I mean, I can probably draw correlations to other industries. So if you look at fintech and healthcare, they're highly regulated industries. And they've had, uh, they have had to deal with compliance for a long time. For tech, it's new, right? Uh, the GDPR and CCPAs mm-hmm. are v- relatively new compared to uh, how it has been for fintech and healthcare. So from what I've seen, every brand out there or every app out there was scrambling to ensure compliance towards uh, GDPR and CCPA. But as as the regulations still evolve, 
I'm pretty sure all the tech companies are going to have a compliance squad on their own just to deal with the growing regulations. So yeah, in the wake of GDPR and CCPA, to, to your point, I think security was be- has become the important S when we were working on that. So yeah, so depending on the stage and maturity, I would say all seven of those are going to be important, but you would prioritize on one versus the other. Yeah, I know that's, that's really interesting. And I, I was thinking as you were talking to you guys, are probably dealing with a decent amount of, of data sources. I, I, I don't know how many, but you talked about the, I love it, the ETLT concept. Talk about uh, data acquisition in general. Talk about it from the standpoint of how complex do you feel like it is? Maybe give it a, give it a rating on a scale of one to 10. What are, what are some of those sources that are regular sources that are coming in? How have you set up those pipelines, et cetera? Yeah, so if I have if I had to rate our ETL pipelines, I would say we are probably at a six or seven. Primarily because, like you said, there's different data acquisition channels, and we do have the mothership data pipeline, which our data engineering team owns, if you will. The reason I say mothership is that's where all the interaction with the with the app is recorded, and then we have ancillary pipelines, if you will. The ancillary pipelines are the ones where we are connecting to, let's say, uh, Google Play Store to get the reviews in, right? Or the ones where we are connecting to uh, iStore, Apple's iStore, to get payment payment information in. Or the ones where we are connecting to performance marketing channels to get the campaign data in. So a lot of times what happens with these ancillary pipelines is you get one-off needs. You try to address a need. And if, you, if you're trying to build pipelines on your own, you have to end up managing that, as in it's, it becomes a noise over the course of time. And you would almost want to see if there is a managed solution which, which does data pipeline as a service for you, right? So we have been thinking in the direction to see if there's something out there which might solve our needs so that we don't need to have data engineering team dedicate some time towards managing those pipelines. What are so what are, what are the technologies that you're using today? Are they AWS specific technologies? Things like Kinesis and Yeah, we were using Kinesis before, but that was for our mothership pipeline. But we moved from Kinesis. We are now on Kafka. But when it comes to these ancillary pipelines, I think we have been looking at a few vendors out there, Fivetran, Stitch, Talent, or few to name, but we haven't made any decision on which route to go. One thing these Manage services give us is you can set up alerts and you can only tend to, I mean, you can go to these pipelines to fix anything only if there's an alert. And the rest of the time, Fivefram probably is going to take care of that for you, right? So, from that perspective, we are looking at few vendors. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, uh, Raleigh. If you've got data sets that are, that you can kind of, that Fivetran talks about that set it and forget it mentality, fully automated, fully managed, and take that work out of it. Take that infrastructure work associated with data engineering and and data infrastructure, data pipelining. I would absolutely uh, take a hard look at that. I mean, you're still going to have some things, like you said, probably that's not going to handle the mothership that you've got of data coming in off the app, but maybe there's another, you know, 20, 30, 40% of your data pipelines that something like that could take an, an exceptionally large workload off and put that on a five tran or, or stitch or something like that. 
So I love that type of strategy. What, uh, how do you plan on making a decision around that? What are the metrics that you're going to look at when you go, okay, I can continue doing what I'm doing today, kind of build my own, or I go to Fivetran. I'm going to pay for Fivetran. I'll pay for Stitch. So I'm sure it's not just, you, you know that, I'm sure it's not just the money, but what are those metrics you're going to look at when you make that decision? Yeah, so some of the metrics in this area are going to be difficult to measure, primarily because the get back you're getting is is something on developer efficiency, right? So you need to keep track of how many hours somebody has spent on managing the pipeline. If you have a ticketing system and if you have been taking, keeping track of that, well and good. But if you're not, there's no way uh, you can make a business case out of it and say, hey, look, this is the total number of hours I've saved moving to, let's say, Fivetran or Stitch, right? So for anybody who is trying to make a business case, the first thing I would ask or recommend to do is ensure that you have good capabilities to measure how much time you're spending on something like managing a pipeline before you make the case for a vendor, right? I myself have made a ton of mistakes in this area talking to vendors, drinking the Kool-Aid, and uh, taking taking it back to the engineering teams, uh, only to hear that it's not a pain, for, pain point for them, right? So from that perspective, the way I'm, I've started looking at this equation is today, the way I do it, I collect all the pain points from various stakeholders, and I, I'll see if there's any commonality in these problems or pain points. I mean, in some, some cases, the way it works, uh, Kelly, is there could be three or four different problems but if you, when you go to the root cause, there could be one root cause, which if you solve, is probably going to be able to take care of all four problems, right? So the way I'm looking at it is collect all your pay points, ensure that it's all documented, and then try to find solutions, either internal or external, and try to map your pain points to your solutions. And if if all your data teams and if all your consumers come to an agreement that they cannot do this internally, then talk about vendors in that space and look for vendors who can solve multiple problems. So if you take this bottoms up approach, I think it's going to lend you well and it's going to help you in your careers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there are so many options out there today. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you, it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid. Every vendor's... Uh, you know, it's tough to uh, discern what's real, what's not. I think that, you know, you look at somebody like Fivetrain, you go, okay, the connector's there, the connector's not there. So it becomes a little more clear uh, going in. And um, it's interesting to hear how you guys are making decisions around whether to uh, buy that managed service or or build. And I think it's, it's, it's good advice for everyone that's in that same game, which just about everybody is. Uh, similarly, you've got you've got challenges when you're looking at delivering these data products. Uh, and I think about it uh, very specifically, the, the consumption side. You've got, I'm sure, quite a few internal users at Tinder that have exceptionally high demands on how they run the business and how they make decisions. But then you've got this massive millions of people that you said as well, depending on the platform. I mean, those are two very diverse uh, sets. How do you how do you satisfy everybody when it comes to data? Yeah, so that's that's probably the daily challenge that I have. <laughs> that's that's the most challenging part, if you will, right? Primarily because there's different consumers and there's different 
delivery mechanisms when it comes to uh, working with these consumers. Somebody wants insights real time. Somebody wants data at a latency. Uh, they, so when it comes to data at a real time, right? If you're looking for data at real time with high accuracy, that's not going to happen, right? So if, yeah. if, you're, if you're trying to look for real time data, then you need to take it in with probably 85% or 90% accuracy because just know that there's no cleansing happening if you're drinking data real time. So working with all these consumers and understanding the data delivery mechanisms, what is the latency that they're looking for? And what is the type of data delivery that they're looking for? And ensuring that there is a common ground from a uh, delivery infrastructure perspective is the most challenging part of my job. And I, the reason I uh, emphasize on this is this is where you're going to fall short if you're not managing expectations, because data ops is going to be pulling their hair out if you make a promise that you're not, not able to meet. What's your, you mentioned data ops, what's your data ops team? What are they responsible for today? Because honestly, for I'm sure some of the folks in the audience, data ops could be a new term. What What is your team doing today, uh, Morali, that is... Uh, unique maybe towards Tinder? Yeah, so like you said, Kelly, data ops is a relatively new term and a new field as well. As was with the case for DevOps, if you ask me, if you told me that there's a DevOps position out there eight years back, I would be like, DevOps, (laughs) does it even exist, right? I mean, everybody has DevOps, right? So similarly, data ops is uh, in a a similar, is it a similar vantage point, I I would say. Uh, Yeah, so to answer your question on what they work on, they take care of ensuring there is infra for data teams. What Mm -hmm. I mean by that is, for example, for ML to get their job done, they need ML infra, which is ensuring that they have the latest version of TensorFlow. Right, mm-hmm. and they have the latest version of PyTorch, for example. Right, and for data engineering to get its job done with, let's say, which is managing rollups or managing transformations for the you know, ETLT part. Like I mentioned, they they're probably using Airflow or Spark or EMR mm-hmm. or any of those combination mm-hmm. of those, ensuring that the EMR performance tuning is done is is what de- DevOps does, right, and ensuring that Airflow is set up. In, in the correct manner to accommodate for all the transformations and all the workflow orchestration is again something data ops uh, setups sets up right. So uh, those are a few examples, but I think you're getting a point on um, yeah. what yeah what data ops is doing for us. No, those are those are great examples. Let me ask: we have we have a lot of folks that you know we talk to about this notion of having a a very uh, strict, rigid data model or going with an approach that maybe is more flexible. I'm not sure if your data ops team is involved in that, but but what what approach has worked for Tinder so far in the time that you've been there? Has your thinking evolved and changed at Tinder or maybe even going back a few years previously in terms of how that is best done? Yeah, so I think our thinking has definitely evolved on this. And my, my specific thinking coming from a B2B space to B2C space has mm. also evolved. I was okay with JSON before. But looking at the kind of problems data engineering team needs to solve with JSON as a uh, structure for uh, data intake, I, I changed my opinion and I feel that there needs to be some kind of a governance, maybe hard type schemas, if you will, that needs to happen at the ingestion layer 
so that consumers don't need to work on data cleansing, right? So let me take an example. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have three different versions of the app, Android, iOS, and web, right? And for a um, field, which is Boolean, Android is sending you yes or no, iOS is sending one or zero, and web is sending false and true, right? So let's say that that's the values you get. It almost always becomes a problem of data engineering or consumers to to map those back to oh. one or zero, one and zero, and send it back to everybody who's consuming, right? So instead of this permeating all the way through ingestion and intake and get landing into the data lake, if you could manage this at the ingestion layer, that's almost gonna help everybody uh, in the equation, right? So moving things upstream. So I think having a hard type schema like protobuf is gonna help you from that perspective. And we have been thinking about moving to protobuf ourselves at Tinder. I mean, I'm just taking a simple example, but you can think of lat longs, ensuring that lat is always in the range of minus 180 to plus 180. Mm -hmm. Long is always in the range of minus 90 to plus 90, right? So these are some validations that you could do uh, upfront uh, and save some save time for your consumers. So I think from that perspective, having a strict type schema with rules and validations for data quality checks is what we are tending towards. And, and this, what you're describing, this is for those uh, mothership data sets coming in. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. What is in, in the volume on those on a... I don't know, per minute, per second, what any, are there metrics there that you can, uh, that you can share? Because I mean, to me, these are, these are essentially extremely large real-time streams that you're having to deal with. And I can see the validity on trying to do some level of uh, transformation or parsing, serializing, sorting upfront, like you're talking about. Yeah. So from a volume perspective, I would say, I mean, I can probably tell you the numbers per hour, right? So at an hour level, we are looking at tens of billions of records. Amazing, amazing. On that note, how is your tea doing? My tea is great. Um, <laughs> the spices got, are definitely... you're, you're blowing me away with these numbers. I got to, I got to take a little break here. I've got to get out, you know, get out my. Uh... My towel, my towel here, and and uh, my my forehead is beating up with the volumes that you guys are dealing with, and we deal with other B two C companies, but it seems like a lot of the organizations we deal with certainly are in that B two B space, and you you think you know, the the volumes that uh, on those millions of of, of records per hour uh, volume wise is is just amazing. Yep. So your your uh, your tea is holding in. Mine is as well. It's doing uh, doing pretty good right now. Let's move on to a different topic. We get asked a lot about you know what's the you know I want to move to some of these newer solutions, cloud based uh, data platforms, and a more modern data stack. And I think the the general sense is that in doing this, you can you can speed up, and we see it in a lot of cases that development cycle for new data products that you're delivering. Maybe those are externally facing, maybe they're internally facing. What are you seeing at Tinder? What is, what's worked and in, in is, is that development cycle continuing to, to speed up? Yeah, so I think with the modern data architecture question that you had, Kelly, I, I think for startups, it might be a good idea to get on to some of these uh, 
fully managed or mm. pay as you go uh, or pay consumption based uh, yeah. yeah exactly consumption based models but for if you look at the volumes that we are dealing with i don't know if consumption based models are good for us because the value add is probably going to be fully taking off loads from our data teams but doing a cost benefit analysis we need mm-hmm. to understand what's the exact cost uh, of some of these consumption based uh, services right yeah. so as as the volumes grow i think the costs definitely are in the same range so so i would say for startups for sure they they lean mean modern data stack out there mm. you can simply get on it and uh, start working with it but as the size grows you got to do a cost benefit analysis on what's working for you in terms of the value the service is bringing in versus the cost you're paying right mm-hmm. so those are the kind of conversations that we get into when it comes to the lean stack that you were referring to from the modern data architecture now that's interesting what when you i guess speaking also to rolling out a new data product is it obviously there's some dependency on what that is but what what's the what's the mentality do you look at it as hey i'm going to let's say it's a let's say the to deliver 100% of the functionality is is a 6 month uh, duration uh, does tender look at it and say hey give me something in a month give me an mvp in a month and i will continue to to add to it how how do you think about those things because again you're talking about potentially a data product that's going to be seen by millions of people but you could also have internal data products do you think about that how that's delivered iteratively differently based on who that uh, who the consumers are of those data products to that extent the data products that we build internally some of those are they, we, we have specific needs from yeah. product and business team saying this is the data product and and yeah. i keep saying data product but to just do a basics on data product and differentiate uh, the spectrum of data products it draw data that we provide to machine learning team is data yeah. product and a uh, fully fully customized dashboard uh, highly sophisticated that we provide to our performance marketing team for insights on a campaign is again a data product mm-hmm. right so when you talk about data product there is an entire spectrum of uh, things that fall yeah. in between these two right so like you said like you like rightly said uh, depending on the type of data yeah. product and type of uh, consumer request we look at few different ways to uh, make this happen right so if it is a uh, data product which falls at the extreme end of the spectrum like a fully customized dashboard uh, mm-hmm. that's needed for insights it almost always trickles down from the top saying hey this is a business goal for tinder and we want to ensure that all data teams are aligned in creating their key results that are delivering this data product mm-hmm. so that that's how it goes but when it comes to the other end of the spectrum a machine learning team looking for uh, raw data it almost starts out with them opening up a uh, notebook uh, on either a jupyter notebook or zeppelin or databricks or whatever they open up a notebook and after doing it ad hoc for a couple of times on their own they feel that there's a need for a data product here i mean mm-hmm. we have done it we have done it like almost 5 6 times the last quarter or so why don't we build a workload and put it to uh, production uh, so mm-hmm. that everybody can benefit of it and nobody has to do it in do it on an ad hoc basis right so i think 
depending on where you are on the spectrum, there, there's different strategies for um, evolving and developing these data products. No, that's interesting. Are you finding success on that? Let's, I'll call it oper, operationalizing, operationalizing, hard to say, ML, uh, machine learning. Uh, or do you feel like you guys are, have been successful at that so far with the teams? I know this may be a little bit outside of your your uh, scope of, of what you have responsibility for, but just in general, the sense for that. And the reason I ask, we're, we're starting to see a pretty good uptake around various industries actually for help in that area. Like you said, let me move beyond just an individual notebook and let me move this out to the masses within the organization. Yeah, so like you said, everybody's struggling with that and we are no different. But what we are trying to do to facilitate such advancements for machine learning team is Mm -hmm. we are carving out specific teams to help, for example, in this case, between ML and data ops, we have created Mm -hmm. a uh, squad called ML Infra, right? So what ML Infra does is they are specialized in taking care of the machine learning team, if you will, taking care of their needs, taking care of the tools that they need, but they're not fully data ops. So we are trying to put people who have the specialization experience into those areas where they can make make it easier for, let's say, ML in this case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, interesting. When you when you look at, for maybe for your team and in the, in the broader organization as well, I'm always interested, I, I like to ask this question is, what do you, what do you look for when you're interviewing a potential data engineer, potential candidate, what, what's most important to you? So that's a loaded question, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. So what's most important to me? Uh, so as a data PM, I sit in on some of the uh, interviews for uh, data team members. And one thing I look for all the time is what's the, what's the mentality for this candidate uh, when he's looking at a data product? Mm. Is it data as a product or data as a service, right? Depending on the kind of maturity um, of the organization that he has, he or she has worked with, or depending on the experiences that they have gained, few people would say uh, data as a product, right? When, when, I say, when people say data as a product, that means I'm going to give you the data, raw data as is, and you deal with it. As in, if you want to create insights okay. of it, if you want to create insights of it, if you want to create data-powered solutions like ML algorithms or whatever, mm-hmm. you deal with it, right? So that's data as a product. But when it's data as a service, what you're looking at is, hey, I'm going to partner with you, right? So what's your uh, requirement? And then we can talk about the data delivery mechanism, be it raw data or aggregated data or a data mod or whatever. I'm going to partner with you and I'm going to facilitate that need for you, right? So as the maturity evolves in the, in this space, I think people tend towards data as a service. But in the, in the initial phases, I think everybody focuses on data as a product, being a data engineer. Yeah, it, I, I love the way you describe that. I think it's uh, it's interesting to how you broke that down. And, and it's something I think we can all be thinking about, uh, not only just in the interview process, but in terms of you know how we're delivering various services to uh, the constituents that we have across uh, the organization. Let me, so that's really helpful. What, throw another one out at you. What if you had to focus on one thing for the next six months, let's say between now and you know when summer starts, what what would you choose to focus on if you had your druthers? So I always believe in building trust in data 
So the, the three levels of maturity that I feel are important for an, a company working with data, for being data-driven or being, being data-informed, is building trust in data. And the second thing is driving adoption with data tools. And the third thing is empowering users. So let me break it down a bit. When I say building trust in data, I'm talking about data quality, integrity, is my data accurate? Is my data consistent? Things like that, right? A machine learning engineer who's uh, trying to uh, create an aggregate on data lake for a metric and a uh, data scientist who is trying to create an insight for the same metric, they should be looking at the same number, right? So that's data consistency, right? Uh, once you achieve that, you have achieved trust in data, right? So that's trust in data. And the second one, like I said, is driving adoption. So when I say driving adoption, what I'm talking about is, is the team data literate enough? When I say data literate, do they know what data is being collected? Do they know why it's being collected? Do they know what are we trying, what are we doing with the data and how do we monetize the data, right? So if these four aspects are uh, understood by everybody in the company, I think that's a data literate company, right? Mm -hmm. And to drive data literacy, I think you, what you got to do is you got to publish data catalogs, data dictionaries, and let people know what a data element means and um, what event tracking means. And I think data lineage also plays a good hand in understanding data literacy. How is this data being originated? Where, where does it come from, right? What is the acquisition channel and uh, where does it end up? What's the lineage, uh, right? So that's another important aspect when it comes to driving adoption. Once you have achieved one and two, that's when I think you are set up for empowering users. And when I say empowering users, that's when you're talking about self-serve. That's when you're talking about bring your own tool, do your own thing. Doesn't matter whether you're looking at a, a data element in a data warehouse, or doesn't matter whether you're looking at in data lake, you'll all will get the same insight, right? Mm -hmm. So when you set up on, when you set, set your ground on one and two uh, in the right fashion, then you are enabling your users to uh, do self-serve on their own. I, and I, I call that as empower users. Absolutely insightful. Let me let me let me put you on the spot. How close do you feel like you are, you and your team are, to being able to do your part of that number three, empowering users? Are you are you have you progressed past one, building trust, two, driving adoption, all the way to that number three? Or where do you maybe a better way to say? It. I mean, obviously you're doing some of that. Do you feel like on a scale of one to ten, where where would you say you are, Merle? I would say we are halfway there. About halfway. No, that's a very, uh, very honest answer. I was going to say it is what you described is absolutely fantastic. It's very, very difficult to get there, though. I mean, there are a lot of of bumps along the way. You talked about data catalog, data lineage. Are, are you satisfied with where you guys are right now from a data catalog and, and data lineage, uh, lineage and provenance perspective? Or is there some more work to do there? There's definitely more work to do okay. there. And that's the reason I said halfway there. Yeah. So Morelli, I gotta I gotta imagine with all the volume of data, all the pipelines that you guys are dealing with, there or is there an opportunity or two for hiring at Tinder right now? Yes, Kelly, I'm glad you asked that question. I've been looking for a data PM myself to help me in my org. So there's a senior data PM position open out there. And if any of your listeners are interested in working at Tinder with the scales and volumes that I was talking about before of data, 
do reach out to me. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, my email. Awesome. Any particular location for for this role? Yeah, so Tinder is headquartered in uh, West Hollywood, but we have offices in uh, San Francisco as well. So it's either LA or SF. Okay, SoCal or NoCal. Perfect. Sounds wonderful. Interesting. Okay, well... Let's uh, let's bring it home here. I know uh, it's a fantastic conversation and insights. Let me just personally, what do you uh, what do you like to do outside of work? I mean, you're you're obviously hitting it hard at Tinder all day long, but what do you do outside of work? So I have two kids. My wife and I we have her uh, hands full. My daughters are six and one, so we have kids running around all the time. So we have so much fun. If not for them, I don't think we would have survived the pandemic. So kudos to them. But yeah, before pandemic, I was playing racquetball a lot. Uh, these days, I'm not able to. I'm looking at Supernatural VR. I don't know if you've heard of them. No, no. Um, yeah, so Supernatural is uh, VR gaming. I hope they release racquetball as a game, and I can. I hope I can find partners to hit it hard. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward for. Racquetball is a lot of fun. I, I played the most that I played racquetball was back in my college days. So it's been a while, obviously, but I really loved it. I play more tennis now, still a racket sport, obviously, but I play more tennis now than anything else. One of the co-founders of our firm, uh, Prepol Singh, I don't know if you've heard him on the podcast. He is an excellent squash player. So I would say watch out if you ever get challenged to a squash game. I'd say, no, Prepol, let's go do some racquetball. What uh, what about if you weren't uh, weren't in tech, weren't in this data engineering space? Anything that stands out in terms of profession that you would really enjoy? Uh, so I I probably would have been a professional sports player. Uh, and if you ask me which sport, to be honest, I haven't picked one. Uh, <laughs> what are your top three? Give me your top three. <laughs> yeah, so probably racquetball is probably yeah. one. And yeah. um, if I if I get to play with Paul, maybe squash. Okay. And. <laughs> And I used to play. I used to play volleyball uh, back in school. So yeah. number three. Oh, very nice. I was uh, I was on the campus of uh, University of North Carolina over the over the weekend for a wedding with my son, and I was amazed. They had they had volleyball courts through in and throughout the campus, uh, kind of beach sand type volleyball and other volleyball multiple places. So. Uh, it looks like, uh, dur- like you said, during normal times would be a lot of fun and uh, another great game, actually. So last thing, anything that you'd like the HashMap on Tap audience to know? Anything maybe you haven't gotten a chance to talk about, you want to give visibility to? Any any final pieces of advice, Merle? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think the data product management space, that's where I, I'm, I'm coming from, is still evolving. There's not a lot of players out there. So for anybody who's trying to get into data PMing, the one piece of advice I'm going to share is ensure that you have high EQ. Mm. Uh, this is absolutely needed for surviving in this space, primarily because you're working with data architects, SMEs, streaming partners, ML engineers who are highly, I mean, they have deep knowledge in the areas that they work with. You as a PM, might not definitely have the same level of depth in any of those areas. So having high EQ helps. And one quote I liked in this space is from the Spotify CEO, be kind and understand everybody's going through their own journey. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I would agree. I mean, having 
the dealing with all of those different personas, um, that, that knowledge base. And then, you know, in a lot of cases that very strong personality type too, uh, it, it can be challenging. So I love that focus on that EQ side of things and, uh, thing you, you will be, uh, on your way, uh, from a journey standpoint. Very, very good. Murali, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Very, very welcome. And I, I'm going to definitely keep up with everything you and the team are doing at Tinder. I want to say a big thank you to, to the HashMap on Tap audience that listened in. We appreciate everybody and would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Visit us at HashMapInc.com and please send us any feedback or comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you soon on another episode and take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.